Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today, like you said, is Bud Welsh, and our topic is From Rage to Reconciliation. In April 1995, Bud Welch's 23-year-old daughter, Julie Marie, was killed in the bombing of the Muro Federal Building in Oklahoma City. In the months after her death, Bud changed from supporting the a, death a, penalty. A correction, a correction, please. Yes. That's the Murrah. The Murrah. Thank you, Bud. M-U-R-R-A-H. Thank you, but The Murrah. Murrah. This is my New York accent. The Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. In the months after her death, Bud changed from supporting the death penalty for Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols to taking a public stand against it. In 2001, Timothy McVeigh was executed for his part in the bombing. Bud has received many awards for his work and has addressed the British Parliament and the European Parliament as part of the Amnesty International Journey of Hope in Paris, London, and Brussels. Welcome to the show, Bud. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, and I, and I loved your title um, that you gave us, Rage to Reconciliation. I was talking about calling the show Forgiveness, but it, it is such an incredible story. For those who don't remember um, the bombing, uh, could you talk a little bit about it? Well, actually, uh, you had mentioned in the intro uh, that after a month I had uh, uh, reached the point to where I no longer wanted the death penalty for Tim McVeigh or Terry Nichols. Actually, that's incorrect. Mm. The uh, the first month, I didn't even want a trial for either one of them. I simply wanted them fried. It took me almost a year to reach the point of recognizing that uh, the day we might take either one of them from their cage to kill them was not part of my healing process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's I, so good for our audience to hear that because yeah. they're in this newly bereaved, they're angry, and to hear you say that you had that level of anger as Absolutely. well as it could we're, we're all on a different timetable, and uh, I know that... Uh, even uh, immediately after uh, the bombing, there were a few of the victims' family members that didn't didn't want the death penalty for either one of them at that point. But we all we all it takes different. We're on different time schedules, and it took me almost a year. And actually, there are others that uh, uh, have been eight, nine, ten years, and they finally reached the point to saying that killing Tim McVeigh did not help them in any way. Right, that's very interesting because we hear that a lot from families that they thought it was going to make them feel better when the person got, had the trial and it, it was sentenced or when there was a death penalty, but then they said it was a surprise they didn't feel better. I, well, I just that, wanted to mention that one, there were 167 people killed in this bombing. Uh, Julie and 167, a total of 168. Wow. Mm, wow. And uh, there were over 500 that were injured. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't actually know the number of the, of the injured because some were treated uh, by medical staff on, on site and were actually never checked into a hospital. And as I recall, Terry Nichols and um, Timothy McVeigh had planned this. They were um, practicing using bombs in, in, on uh, Terry Nichols' farm. Was that it? And well, actually, it's on his brother uh, James' farm uh, out north of Detroit in Decker, uh, near Decker, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they loaded up a truck uh, with manure bomb and, and parked it by the building and then put in a timer. and. Well, actually, it was, it was diesel fuel and, uh, and ammonia nitrate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they built the bomb in Kansas, and McVeigh drove, drove the Ryder rental truck to Oklahoma City with containing the 6,000-pound bomb. Mm-hmm. 
And as I remember, one of the things that they did to show kind of a clearness of mind about it was he put money in the parking meter so he wouldn't get a ticket. Is that right? Um, I seem to no, remember that. I don't know. Uh, anyway, no, I, I, I don't recall that because actually, where he pulled the where he pulled the truck uh, in front of the building, uh, he actually lit the first fuse uh, about a block away and uh-huh. then drove the next block. And where he pulled it, he pulled it into a uh, commercial loading zone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there actually was no parking. Maybe meter. that was went before he moved. Just for some reason, that struck me as you know, kind of. Odd at the time. Well, and then the the thing blew up, and it just destroyed the building, right? Yes, it uh, it was a nine story building, and uh, there were uh, I think there were about a thousand people that worked in the building. And uh, as I remember, there was a daycare center in there for children too. Yes, the uh, social security where my daughter worked was on the first floor, and the daycare center was right above uh, where she worked uh, on the second floor. And there were nineteen small children that were killed. Uh, they were not all in the daycare center. I think three of the children actually were accompanying uh, grandparents, and they were in the Social Security waiting room. There were 24 clients in Social Security that morning in the waiting room, and all 24 died uh, because the Ryder truck bomb, uh, the only thing that separated the bomb from the Social Security waiting room was the sidewalk about 20 or 25 feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Julie had left the rear of the, uh, the, rear of the Murrah building to walk to the front of the building to get her client. Uh, she had an appointment with a Mexican man that could not speak English at 9 o'clock, and she mm-hmm. was a Spanish translator for Social Security. Uh. And uh, she walked to the front of the building to the Social Security waiting room to get her client. And uh, he had been brought by a friend of his that was bilingual, and Julie and the two men were returning to her office and got about halfway through the building when the bomb went off at 9.02. Uh. That was Wednesday morning, and all three bodies were found together on Saturday. Uh, so she was killed instantly. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful young woman she is. If you go to um, Bud's website, you can see pictures of Julie Marie, and what a lovely, lovely person. The best best way to find it actually is to Google it and just t- uh, type my name in. Uh, Bud Welch. Just uh, uh, Google that in, and, and you Welch can find Welch is with a C, not an S. Right. You can see some great things. Well, talk to us a little bit. You had this huge anger, of course. Yeah, and when I look back on that now, at the time I was going through that, I really was at times of kind of feel guilt because I was I was so angry and I was wanting revenge so bad. But when I look back on that now, I, I can see that actually what I was doing was very normal, that uh, uh, that it's very normal for people to have those those emotions, those feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just takes some time to, uh, to, to sort things out. Mm-hmm. And uh, with me, I... Uh, I spent 37 years running Texaco service stations here in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and I'm now retired from that. But uh, uh, I'd close my Texaco station, and when I'd arrive at home at night, the first thing I would do is make a drink. And if I drank enough, when I went to bed, I could go to sleep. It was the next day that I was paying for it. Mm-hmm. And this self-medication just kept escalating over a period of about 11 months. And... Uh, and I went to the bomb site each day after Julie's death. I felt, uh, felt a special closeness by going there. Of course, that was the last place that she was alive. Mm-hmm. And we were to meet that Wednesday at 11.30 for lunch. We tried to meet each Wednesday for lunch at 11.30 at a little Greek restaurant across the street from where the Murrow building sat. And uh, I went down to the, to the bomb site. It was like, like the last day of January of 1996, almost 10 months after the bombing. And... I stood across the street from where the building had once stood, 
and all of the rubble had been cleaned up from the building, and there was a chain-link fence that had been put around the footprint of the building because we uh, uh, we considered that ground to be uh, sacred ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't want people walking on it, of course. And I stood watching people hang things on the chain-link fence as they did by the thousands each day the first year after the bombing. And my head was splitting. It was about 3 in the afternoon. It was a rather cold day. And... I went to ask myself, what do I need to do to be able to move forward? Because what I was doing was not working. Mm-hmm. You were drinking? and uh, Drinking, yes. And, and, of course, working each day. Mm-hmm. And even having customers tell me, say, Bud, you're killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I didn't care. Right. Because right. my thought was, uh, my thought process at that time was, well, the sooner I die, the sooner I'll see Julie again. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was going through. And, uh, But I was standing there. And went to asking myself a whole series of questions. What did I need to do to be able to move forward? Because it was like I had this basket in front of me. And I had Tim McVeigh's life in this basket. I had Terry Nichols' life. I had alcohol in the basket. I had tobacco in the basket because I was a smoker at that time and became a very heavy smoker immediately after Julie's death. And so finally I was able to kind of start tossing these things out one at a time. And there were three questions that stuck in my mind that, that afternoon. And that is, do you need trials to begin now? Because the first trial did not start for 25 months. Do you need convictions and do you need executions? Struggling with those three questions on my mind for probably the next three weeks, I finally came to the conclusion that the day that we would take either one of them from their their cage to kill them would be an act of revenge and hate. And I recognized that revenge and hate was the very reason that Julie and 167 others are dead in this great city today. It was the revenge that they held against the United States government for actually several things. Both of them had served together in the Gulf War in 1991 and had come back as two angry young men, unfortunately, as many young men do come back from war. And uh, then when Waco, Texas happened on April the 19th, 1993, and that 54-day siege by the federal government with ATF and FBI agents, and, of course, the compound uh, eventually was tear gassed, and then it burned to the ground, and 86 people died. Mm-hmm. Tim McVeigh was there during that 54-day siege, very angry at the federal government because they had the compound surrounded. And he was even, there's photos of him even uh, sitting on the hood of his car handing out anti-government material. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with handing out anti-government material. At least I, I think we still can. And, uh, and Tim was just consumed by it. And that's why they picked the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City to bomb because there were ATF agents and FBI agents out of Oklahoma City that were at Waco, Texas. The top law enforcement person there was the head FBI agent out of Oklahoma City. And they thought they were headquartered in the Murrah Building. ATF was in the Murrah Building. FBI was not. And so that's the reason they selected that building. And the date they selected to to do it was the second anniversary of Waco, April Uh, 19, 1995. And after being able to sort all of that out, and understand what they had done with their anger, uh, their revenge. I knew I had to redirect mine some other some other direction oh, because I could clearly see what had pushed these two guys off the table, so to speak. Yeah. And once I started understanding that, then I was start starting to not wanting to join them with yourself. I was talking about how I was able to to finally start reconciling things, mm-hmm. and by doing and in that process, uh, and believe me, this this is not an event; it's a process. Mm-hmm. During that process, I was able to start remembering some things that I had suppressed that happened shortly after the bombing. I think that's maybe God's way of not 
putting too much on our plate at one time when we're going through a crisis like that. Right, protecting and, ourselves. And I, uh, I, st- I remembered seeing Bill McVeigh on television about three weeks after the bombing. Bear in mind, during the period of time that I didn't even want a trial for his son. And so look, really this is a year later you're yeah, talking about now? a year later. Okay. And I really had not thought about it for, uh, for almost a year. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a sound bite that was on, on uh, the news that he was going to be on after this series of commercials. And I remember my thought very clearly at that time was, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this man. However, I didn't really leave the room or change the channel. And I sat and watched as he was being interviewed. He was standing in front of his home. He lives in a rural area not far from Buffalo, New York. And he was standing in front of his home, stooped over a flower bed like he was maybe nervously pulling weeds from it or something. And there was a television camera off to his right shoulder, and he did not look into the camera. He kept his face and and right shoulder kind of turned away from it. And a reporter would ask a question and hold the microphone down for Bill to answer. And I don't recall any of the questions that that reporter asked that day or any answers that Bill gave. But on his final answer, he stood almost straight up and looked directly to his right into the lens of the television camera for just a couple of seconds. And when he did, I could see this large man, he's about six feet three, physically stooped in grief. And he had a deep pain in his eye that I recognized immediately because I was living that same pain. And I knew right then that someday, in spite of my frame of mind at that moment, Someday I needed to go tell that man that I truly cared how he felt and did not blame him or his family for what his son had done. And so, so at that point there was empathy between I'm sorry? you. You had empathy for him as a father. Yeah, because I could see the awful pain he was going right. through. Uh, and in spite of the pain I was in at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I actually had the chance more than three years later, in fact it was in June of 1998, 38 months after the bombing, I received a telephone call from a nun from Attica Prison who does minister work there. In fact, she's still there today. And the purpose of her call was to ask me to come to the Buffalo-Niagara Falls area of western New York to speak against the death penalty. I'd been traveling for nearly two years at that time. This is 38 months after the bombing. Speaking against the death penalty. And I had been in Syracuse in April two months earlier. And that's how she got my name and telephone number. But we talked for about an hour, and I told her, uh, about seeing Bill McVeigh more than three years earlier on television, how I often thought of his well-being. Well, she convinced me, that since he lived in the Buffalo area, that a meeting should be arranged between the two of us. And I uh, finally agreed to that. And it took her about six weeks to get the meeting arranged, and I committed to going the first week of September. She called me in early August, and she said, Bud, you will meet with Bill the sixth day you're in the Buffalo area. She said, that'll be a Saturday morning, September the 5th, at 10 a.m. at his house. Well, everything about this sounded fine except meeting at the house. Mm-hmm. I certainly had learned at that point that uh, Bill and his wife, Mickey, had divorced a number of years earlier and that Tim had lived with his dad while he was in high school. And his and sister, also, too, right? And, and his youngest sister, Jennifer, mm-hmm. uh, who's five years younger. And, and he also lived there with his dad after he came back from the Gulf War. And... Uh, and I somehow didn't think that was the place that I wanted to meet his dad. Well, nonetheless, I went and spoke for five days in the Buffalo area. The final speech was on Friday night at Canisius College, a Jesuit school near downtown Buffalo. And after I spoke, there were two men that came forward and introduced themselves and said that they knew Bill McVeigh. One had worked with him at General Motors, and the other uh, was a neighbor. Well, I immediately went to quizzing them about his personality because I was apprehensive about this meeting coming up right, the for next sure. morning. And, of course, these two guys had no idea I was going to meet with him because no one did. Mm-hmm. We kept it very quiet. 
because we didn't want the media involved whatsoever. Right, because they were on that family, weren't they? Oh, and yes. yours and yes, very much. And uh, uh, and so I learned from them that Bill was very shy, that he didn't uh, talk much, but he had a hobby that he really enjoyed doing each summer, and that's growing a very large garden in his backyard. He lives on about two acres of land, and he gave vegetables away to neighbors and what have you. So the next morning, Sister Roslyn, the nun from Attica Prison, she comes by the hotel and takes me the 20 miles into the country to his home, to his house. She didn't know where he lived, but we were giving directions. And, uh, and that, of course, that trip is a story in, its, in itself. Yeah, I bet. Uh, the, uh, so how was it seeing him, just walking in and seeing him? Well, uh, you know, I've really got to set this up differently because I knocked on his door. And after I knocked on his door and introduced myself, uh, I said to him, I said, Bill, I understand you have a nice garden in your backyard. This uh-huh. big guy got a really big smile on his face like he threw a spotlight on him and didn't seem the least bit shy, and he said to me, would you like to see it? I said, I'd love to. I knew when I was following him through his garage to his backyard that we would find common ground. Uh, and we spent about 30 minutes out there getting to know one another. Then he invited me into the house, told me that Jennifer was there, that she had come because she wanted to meet me. And uh, she had just completed college and started started teaching school. What a we tough had, tough thing for her to have this thing with her brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, she always had looked up to him. And... Uh, but we walked into the back door, into the kitchen, and he introduced me to Jennifer. And we sat at the kitchen table, and she sat on one side of it, I sat on the on the other, and Bill sat to my left. Um, on the right side, the table was pushed against the wall. Up on the wall were some family photos, just snapshots. And I noticed after sitting there for about five minutes, the biggest picture on the wall was right above my right shoulder, and it was an 8 by 10 of Tim. Well, during this hour and a half of conversation, quite frequently, I'm glancing at that picture of Tim on the wall. And then I started feeling self-conscious because I've, I know I've looked many times, and I, of course, they have seen me each time. And so, finally, I caught my eyes on the picture, on the photo, another time, and felt com- compelled to make a comment. And I just simply said, "God, what a good-looking kid!" Well, there was utter silence in that kitchen when I said that. I looked across the table at Jennifer, and she had dropped her eyes to the table and didn't say a word. And Bill had done the same thing. Early had on- you seen him in court? I'm sorry? Had you seen him in court? I had seen him in, in, in court, and also I'd seen Jennifer in court. Oh, right. I had, never, I had never met them. And, and had seen, Dad been there, too? I'm sorry? Did, did his father go to trial, too? No, Bill, Bill is who I was talking about, Bill and Jennifer. The uh-huh. father and, and daughter were. Mm-hmm. I saw him in court. Yeah, at the court. When you went to visit them, was Tim in jail at the time? Yes. I mean, excuse me, was he in trial or was the trial no, over? No, 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 no. I'll, uh, I'll, let me go through, go through Well, you kind of have to, we have to kind of cut it short because I, we're going to run out of time. Yeah. So. But I, I must tell you about the, about the, Bill had asked me when we were in his garden, he said, Bud, can you cry? Mm-hmm. Earlier he'd asked that. And I thought, why is he asking this question? I mm-hmm. said, Bill, yes, I can. And I usually don't have much trouble doing so. And he, uh, he said, all of my life I've had trouble crying. And he said, my father was much the same way. And he said, I've had a lot to cry about the last three and a half years, and I just can't do it. After this mm-hmm. long silence ended at the kitchen table, Bill looked at the picture on the wall and just simply said, that's Tim's high school graduation picture. But when he said it, there's this great big tear that rolled out of his right eye down his cheek. Mm-hmm. And I could see at that moment a love that a father still had for a son in spite of what he had done. Right. And uh, I yeah. think what was going on in Bill's mind at that moment was this. You're going to love your children more the more they need you. That's just the way God made moms and dads. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, Tim was in prison in Florence, Colorado. Uh, he had been sentenced to death, and Bill knew he needed him desperately. However, he knew there was not a thing that he could do for him. Mm-hmm. And so, and you were going around the country uh, trying to 
talk against the death penalty, but there was not a lot you could do about it either, right? That's correct. Yeah, what interesting. Now, were you married at the time? Yes. And how about your wife? Where is she in all this? Uh, Julie's mother and I, we actually had divorced when Julie was six. Okay. Uh, my current wife and I have been married 28 years. Okay. So Lena and I divorced a long time ago. So you had two two women that were, your ex-wife was certainly grieving and you were involved with her, yes, and then, and then your married. wife certainly would right. feel that this was her... I remarried a little over a year after after Lena and I divorced, and she never did remarry. Uh-huh. But after Julie's death, we we propped one another up because it was our child. Yeah, so, now, did they have different feelings than you did about the death penalty? No, and... Julie was very strong against the death penalty. She was actually an activist against it. I never was until after her death. Mm-hmm. Wow! And so, so by meeting um, the father, you know Timothy's father, did it help you? let go of even more of your rage, sure. or had you already gotten to that point? Yeah, what happened to me that Saturday morning when I met Bill McVeigh is I really met a bigger victim of the Oklahoma City bombing than myself. And I say that in spite of the fact I no longer have Julie. Bill McVeigh and I have one thing in common. We have both buried our children. Mm-hmm. They died in different ways, but we both buried children. And when, you, when your parents die, you go to the hilltop and you bury them. When your children die, you bury them in your heart, and it's forever. It never mm-hmm. goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. One of the things I notice on your website, you've got a very nice comment that you made, and uh, it says that people uh, talk about closure, bringing closure, but how can we uh, there be closure when my little girl is never coming back? Right. I finally realized the penalty is all about revenge and hate, and revenge and hate are why Julie Murray and 165 others are dead. I thought that was uh, a pretty profound comment. Heidi and I have talked about closure with a lot of people and the fact that there really is no closure on having a child die or a sibling die. The death penalty, I I like to say the death penalty really is about, it's really about two things. It's about uh, revenge and politics. Uh, Family members are, are, are told that they, in so many ways, how they need to have this revenge. And what I have learned... In now, how do they do that? How, how are our families by, out there being told... By seeking, by seeking the death penalty and getting family members to support that. In cases that I have been involved with over the last 10 years, I don't know of a single case where the, where the prosecutor even, even followed up with the death penalty, seeking the death penalty, after family members had told him they did not support the death penalty. Well, that's interesting. Now, it's for family members that are going to a trial like you went to with Timothy McVeigh, and we know we've got families out there that are doing that right now. What would you suggest to them? What do they need? Well, first of all, they need to they need to not listen to the prosecutor that if they get the death penalty for this person, they will somehow be able to have closure mm-hmm. because that is not... The or even send them to life in prison, they don't even get closure. No, that doesn't give them give them closure. Yeah, could you talk about how people feel during it and after, and how you felt? And the... well, and be, well, they're they're so misguided. I mean, it's, it's family members here in Oklahoma City were uh, just knew a lot of them just knew on June the eleventh, two thousand one, when we took Tim McVeigh from his cage in Terre Haute, Indiana, at seven a.m. that Monday morning, and killed him. That they were going to feel better by sunset on that Monday, mm-hmm. and they simply did not. And I've had many family members that have come to me since. I'm on the board of directors of the Oklahoma City National Memorial, and so I know most of the family members. And I've had many of them that have come to me since his death and said, you know, it didn't do for me what I thought it would, 
We've heard people on the show say the same thing. And exactly. compassionate friends. Yeah. Now, now, what are you going? What would you say to people out there? Can give them a reason to give it up, or and tell them how to do it. Well, if, I mean, you really don't have to give them a reason other than the fact that if another human taking their last breath has nothing to do with your healing process, or or another person being in prison for the rest of their life. Well, that uh, that either. But I mean, that's. Uh, that's more understandable because that's supposed but to be... But still, if they're still feeling, you know... Exactly, right. You still don't get satisfaction. Right. We, we had a family on that had gone through the Columbine tragedy, a, a sibling, and he said, look, I can either stay bitter or I can get better. That's right. And I have met several of the family members from from Columbine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know that uh, some of them were uh, uh, would not support the death penalty if these two young men were alive. Now, it's been uh, how many years since the bombing? That happened, that happened on April the 20th, 1999. Okay, now... The next day after the fourth anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, tell the folks out there who have had somebody, uh, a murder or whatever in the family, tell them how you did it, how you did it. Have you got any advice for them how they can move into reconciliation? Well, I think, I think, one th- I think the thing that helped me... To, to completely move through, you might say, is the fact that I did have the opportunity to be to meet Bill McVeigh, and be able to you you have to be able to place a face uh, on on the uh, on the family, if if you will, mm-hmm. of the uh, of the perpetrator. I think that was extremely helpful to me, and revenge, the death penalty, and executing executing someone is simply about revenge. And as I said earlier, revenge does not heal anyone. And does yeah. not bring your daughter back. No, it does not. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's interesting when we're talking about this because Heidi and I have been working with the 9-11 families, uh-huh. and one of the problems they've got is that it's faceless. You know, they can't know those families. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, Columbine was much the same way uh, because both, uh, both young men uh, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. But you might know their families with the uh, exactly with right. the other. It's difficult. So somewhere you have to find maybe a faith in humanity uh-huh. again too. And I've done an awfully lot of work with nine eleven family members, of, especially the group uh, uh, Peaceful Tomorrows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, in fact, I went to uh, I went to New York in uh, uh, this last September and spent uh, uh, spent a whole ten days with uh, with them. At, uh, and, and what advice did you give them? Well, as I mean, far as finding these, these are, reconciliation, these are people the the people in Peaceful Tomorrows. Are people that did not, did not want re, retaliation, mm-hmm. and they were very opposed to uh, uh, to us going in, for example, and bombing uh, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not want that at all, and uh, and a lot of these family members have actually been to Afghanistan and met with families over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so there was that meeting again. That's right. interesting. Exactly, yeah. because that's the thing. That's the thing that I've found that, ha- that helps people so much more. Is that they somehow can make a connection to the, you know, the perpetrators, family members, uh, their, uh, you know, relatives of some kind. If they can make a connection there, because the pain is is on both sides. Right now, one of the things I want to say for our audience out there, because some of them are just maybe in the six months, a year. You know, this was three years before you met Timothy McGabe's dad, right? Yes, it was actually almost three and a half years. Yeah. So, so don't expect too much of yourself, right? That's exactly right. And what you, the thing that you have to do, the most important thing that you have to do, is give yourself time. You have to give yourself time. I met so many of the, fa- the family members in New York. In fact, the first, the first one I met 
was a young man, uh, I mean, was the mother of a young man who uh, well, actually was 23 years old. He had graduated from Siena College up by Albany, and he'd worked for Cantor Fitzgerald for 88 days. Mm. Uh, and uh, and he he disappeared in the in the in the attack, and I met his mother and I met her uh, less than three weeks after his death, and uh, and of course she asked me how did I get where I am, mm-hmm. and I said the thing the most important thing you have going for you is time. You must give yourself time to be angry, to be angry at God as I was because He let it happen. I was angry at at Julie but at times because she, uh, you know, why was she working there? I had trouble rationalizing that, and I was angry at myself. And you have to give yourself time to go through all of these angry steps, and then you're then you're able to start reconciling. And it sounds like that after you went through those steps, you almost got to the point where you were destroying your own life through smoking, alcohol, rage, anger. Absolutely. And you said you stood there and said, okay, at, at one point you finally said, what can I do to move forward? Exactly. Because what I was doing was not working. And right. I, I was finally able to recognize that. And I was actually becoming scared at, at that time. I was afraid that I had become an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and uh, and as it turned out, I I had not. I was uh, I guess I was just self medicating, and mm-hmm. and once I was able to start sorting things out, uh, then I was able to get to get a handle on the alcohol abuse, and I stopped doing that. Now, do you have other children? Uh, yes, I have uh, two sons. And how are they doing? How have they dealt with it? Uh, they have dealt with it uh, uh, quite good. I have to be uh, I have to be most careful uh, in tra- as I travel all over the world speaking. And of course, when I speak, I tell stories about Julie and I brag on her and about mm-hmm. some things that she did and some things we did together. And I have to be a little careful about that around my two my two boys because you know that old sibling rival of rivalry is still there. Right, even, even and we can't she, compete against the person dead. that's gone. Pardon me. I said we can't as siblings we can't compete against the person that's gone. That's correct. Yeah. It's difficult because and you know. So, uh, for that reason, I have to be very careful uh, mm-hmm. uh, about that because uh, they're two great young men. And uh, now, were they older or younger? Uh, one was older and one was younger. And do they do any speaking also against the death no, penalty or no, anything? No, okay. neither one of them do. Mm-hmm. They both support what I'm doing, right? Uh, but neither one of them uh, speaks against the death penalty. I mean, they will privately if you're talking to them privately. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how about Terry Nichols? Um, he's in prison for life, right? Uh, yes, I uh, I actually talked to Terry Nichols during his trial as at a state trial for Terry in uh, nineteen. Uh, I mean, in two thousand four, uh, that trial took place in McAllister, Oklahoma, and that, in fact, McAllister is the is the hometown of our killing house, and uh, and so that's where his trial took place. And of course, uh, he did not get the death penalty in the state trial as he did in, in the federal trial as well. The jury locked up eight to four on the state trial. Mm-hmm. So you spoke to him? I spoke to him on the telephone about five different times during his trial. Uh, his attorneys would uh, would call me uh, from the from the courthouse. Did Did he apologize at all? No, no, because he could not do that because okay. he was in the midst of his trial. Right. <clears throat> now, why did you happen to speak to him? Well, they wanted me to they wanted me to talk to him because they I had indicated that at one point that I would like to talk with him. Mm-hmm. And of course, he was very, extremely remorseful that Julie had died. And then after his trial was completely over and his legal proceedings was completely finished, I received a very nice letter from Terry. Yeah, but you know, some of our family, yeah, some of our families, this doesn't happen to. This is pretty amazing because some of them, um, you know, they don't get anything from that other person. In fact, the person denies it forever. Mm -hmm. There's a surprising number of people here in Oklahoma City that have been corresponding with Terry Nichols. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
and some for quite a number of years. And I think that's helped them through their healing process. I wanted you to talk a little bit about this public versus a personal loss. And for those folks out there who are involved with high-profile cases, what's your advice to them? Well, you know, the high-profile cases, of course, get so much media just in the, in the, uh, in the Oklahoma City bombing and the, and the McVeigh family and uh, the satellite dishes parked for blocks from Bill McVeigh's home in the country, and they stayed that way for weeks. And, and it's just, uh, I think that if, if victims' family members can somehow at some point extend a hand to the family members of the perpetrator, I think it's so, it's so important for their healing process as well as the uh, as the process of the uh, perpetrator's family, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I found uh, I found a tremendous amount of amount of healing. I uh, <clears throat> I found that Bill McVeigh was just really uh, just kind of like me, just a, a slug out there working for a living, and uh, and he had no idea that his son was going to to do this. He didn't know the the depth of the anger that uh, that his son had against the U.S. government. He did know that. Uh, uh, that Tim had left had left Western New York and had gone out to Arizona and had gotten involved with uh, uh, with some militia groups, but he didn't know the real extent because a lot of times he didn't even know where Tim was. Yeah. Now, what um, we've had people tell us for one thing that um, that they recommend that the family pick one advocate to speak to the press. Yes. Did you did you do anything like that? Did people want to talk to you, or were there enough family members that you didn't get that focus? Well, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of family members that talked to the talked to the press, and uh, but as, as far as my family is concerned, I was probably yeah I was the main one talking to the to the media, and uh, I became very open about it after I was able to start going through the the, the healing process. And I had to, first thing I had to do is get rid of the revenge and the hate because you can't do any healing as long as you're carrying that. They, mm-hmm. they just they they just don't mix. Now you had that revenge and hate for a year though. Absolutely, and it was the most awful year I've ever spent in my life, mm-hmm. and uh, I hope I never have to experience experience that again. And uh, and I hope to God I don't bury another child. Julia is my second child to bury. Oh, you had another child. Finally. Well, I had another child that died as an infant. He was, uh-huh. he was two months old, wow. but I was only nineteen when that happened. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. He's buried in uh, Colorado Springs. Mm, what's his name? Uh, Gregory. 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 Gregory Michael. Uh, Gregory Michael, very nice. Named after the high school that I went to, St. Gregory's in Shawnee, Ohio. Wow, I like that. Well, you know, your story is so inspirational, Bud, and I'm just sitting here thinking that if you can forgive after what you went through and after what Julie went through, if you can forgive, I feel that everyone listening out there, that there's hope that they will be able to forgive as well. You know, there's, there's a, what I have learned is there's, there's, a, there's actually steps. I first of all went through what I like to call reconcile things, and, and mm-hmm. what I mean by reconciling is, I guess, understanding things. And that was the first step that I had is being able to understand what it was that, that pushed them off the table, so to speak, that, that caused them to do what they did. And uh, and then the forgiveness thing is that's another step. Mm-hmm. And I started having that feeling like in June of uh, June of two thousand. Uh, more than five years after Julie's death. And that lasted through from June probably through October where I was starting to have these feelings that I was forgiving, uh, that I was forgiving Tim McVeigh. And Tim McVeigh was still alive at that time because uh, we did not kill him until June 11th of uh, 2001. And what I learned through that forgiveness process that I went through for several months' time 
is that once I reached that, it was myself that had been released. It had nothing to do with Tim McVeigh. Mm-hmm. And I was the person that had been freed by that. So and you were in your own prison. I'm sorry? You were living in your own prison. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because when you're... And I don't know that you that everyone has to forgive, but I'll tell you one thing. It sure makes you feel a hell of a lot better if you can do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, so that forgiveness and connection. And I was wondering, do you think having the loss of another child, um, did that impact the way you dealt with Julie Marie, or was it totally different? It was totally different because I was 19 at the time of Gregory's, uh, Gregory's death, and he was only two months old. And there's a huge difference in burying a two-month-old and a 23-year-old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got to know this personality of Julie. I mean, her mother took her to school every morning. I picked her up every afternoon from school until she was old enough to get her driver's license in high school. And uh, so I was with Julie every single day. Yeah, so and, you, you uh, have a lot of history with her. And we were we were very, very close. We, uh, uh, God, we loved together, but, man, did we ever fight together. God, sometimes we had some awful fights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, of course, I learned when she was a very small little girl that there were some times that, that I was going to have to give in because she just wasn't going to. It wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and once I learned that, we started getting along a lot better. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, how did you feel when Timothy uh, McVeigh was executed? You know, I, I was conditioned for that. I was expecting that. And, uh, and I, uh, I, it didn't make me feel a lot different, except I just thought, you know, what a waste. What, how foolish is this that we're telling people that, that some people are going to find he, uh, healing by killing him mm-hmm. when they're not? Because it has nothing to do with the healing process. Mm-hmm. Well, normal, I, human, normal human beings, and I stress normal human beings, are not going to get a feel good out of another human taking their last breath. God mm-hmm. simply did not make us that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you had a piece of advice for somebody out there, for some of the folks that have lost a child, what would it be? And well, maybe we should start with the first loss of your first infant. For those folks who've got lost an infant, what would your suggestion be? Well, you know, the pain there is. The question you keep asking is why. And, of course, in Greg's case, uh, uh, we found him dead in his crib. Uh, an autopsy was done, and he was born with a tumor in his heart that we were unaware of at the time he was born. And, uh, and of course, that was, uh, uh, that was tough to deal with that. Uh, even though he was a tiny baby, and it's been years since he was, uh, uh, in fact, if Greg were living today, he'd be 47 years old. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, that you I still know, hold him in your heart, don't I you? I never get him out of my out of my mind, out of my heart. Never. Right. And uh, I guess I never will. Yeah. And I had, my grandmother had lost uh, her oldest daughter when she was seven years old, back in the early 1900s. And my grandma had grieved about that until the day that she died. And uh, until I started losing uh, children, then I w- was finally able to understand what she had gone through. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, as Heidi said, it's just absolutely um, wonderful to hear your story. Wouldn't you say, Heidi, for, for everyone out there? Well, thanks. And you, and you asked me what advice I might have. Yeah. The oh, yes. We want to have that. The most important thing that people have is time. Mm-hmm. You must give your time to be angry. Uh, I was angry at God. I was angry at myself. I was even angry at Julie. And you must time, have, give yourself time to go through that, all of that process. Boy, you know, that's pretty amazing that you were in touch with all that, with Angry at Julie, too. And well, was, a lot of people don't get, you know, aren't able to get there. And being you able know, to admit I was, that. I, briefly, I can tell you I was angry at Julie because 
When she graduated from Marquette University in Milwaukee in 1994, she had a degree in Spanish and a minor in French and Italian. And and they wanted her to come back and be a grad assistant in the, in the fall of the year and had been the first grad assistant that they'd used in the Spanish department. And she didn't. She wanted to go to work for a couple of years before she went back to school. And my thought was, if Julie had done what I wanted her to do, she had been in Milwaukee, she wouldn't even been in Oklahoma City. And that was my anger at her. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And anger at yourself. Why were you angry with yourself? Uh, because I had uh, encouraged you to pursue foreign languages. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. And she oh, never would have been there. Yeah. Isn't it interesting the stories we tell? Well, if you've got one piece of advice, it was time, right? That's right. You got time. You have to. Okay. Have to well, listen. We hope everybody will come to the Compassionate Friends National Conference and hear more from uh, Bud Welch on from Rage to Reconciliation. And we want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Bud. Thank you, guys. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.